You're listening to Divorce Happy Hour, everything you need to know about divorce in New Jersey. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. Joining me today is Colleen Clark, an attorney whose practice focuses on special education matters, trust in estate law, including special needs planning and probate matters, guardianship, and complex real estate transactions. Ms. Clark is a strong advocate for the rights of students who require special education programs. Ms. Clark also helps protect the assets and governmental benefits of disabled individuals to ensure their current and long-term needs are met. Thanks for joining us today, Colleen. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is actually a very important topic, and it arises quite frequently in the context of divorce because, as you know, when we're negotiating a property settlement agreement, we have to address things like child support, custody, and if we know that there's a child who has special needs, We'll talk about this a little more specifically. There are certain provisions that we really should have in a settlement agreement to safeguard the best interests of the children, right? Absolutely. And unfortunately, if you don't know that these sorts of things exist, you can actually make some mistakes in the property settlement agreements, um, which hopefully are able to be remediated later. Maybe we don't need to get into that part, but we're going to talk about um, some of the things that are important specifically to special needs children and their parents and some things that they should be thinking about. So the first question I want to ask is, what is a special needs child? Um, A special needs child is a child with a disability that requires accommodations to some extent, either in the school district or at home or often both. So what are some examples of a special need that a child might need? Sure. Um, Special needs could include ADHD. It could include autism. It could include um, a physical disability, such as um, if a child has um, an I'm sorry, and and hearing impairments. Um, You can have children with speech impairments. There's a whole host of different varieties of special needs. So if a child has something like that, would they be placed on an IEP? And, And what is that? Absolutely, yes. If a child has a special need and is in school and has been identified by the school district as having that special need, then they would have either an IEP, which is an individualized education program, or a 504 plan, depending upon what is most appropriate for the child. So they're not the same thing? No, they're not the same thing. The IEP provides greater protections and accommodations for the student than the 504 plan does. Okay. Can you give a few examples of what it provides in addition? Sure. Absolutely. A 504 plan is designed to provide equal access to a child with a disability to the educational system. So if a child requires a wheelchair, the 504 plan will require ramps and doorways that are large enough for the child to get into so they have equal access to everything that a non-disabled student would have, whereas the IEP might, in fact, change the instruction a little bit for a child that maybe requires additional time or maybe requires the lesson to be broken down in a different way. And what is the goal? Is it to put the child on equal footing with with his or her peers, or is it just to create the best learning environment? Yeah, um, it's not always possible to put the child on an equal level as the general education peers, but the goal is certainly to get as close as possible as we can. Um, And both the IEP and the 504 plan are intended to provide what's called FAPE. 
and that's an acronym that means a free and appropriate public education to the child. And sometimes the key word there is appropriate. Yes. So I know that sometimes there's a debate about what is appropriate. So if sometimes I guess maybe it's obvious that there needs to be an IEP or something like that. But what about um, what normally is the process if it's something that's maybe a little more subtle? And let's say maybe the school will recognize that there should be an IEP how will, how is that addressed? I mean, what would be the initial steps? Would the school right. bring that to the parents' attention? Sometimes. Sometimes you have a child who maybe has participated in early intervention before becoming school-aged. And in that case, when the child turns age three, they um, are automatically directed to the public school district for an evaluation process. And that evaluation will then determine if they're eligible for special education. But sometimes um, the disability is not necessarily... Um, noticed at an earlier age. Sometimes it becomes more apparent as the student gets older. And so the schools have something called child find. And that's the school's obligation to determine a student that may have a disability. And then they contact the parent and they say, we would like to evaluate your child and see if we can offer them special education. And who pays for that? There's federal funding. The school districts um, have received specialized funding for this process, and so the parent does not pay for it at all. Okay. Now, what happens if a parent is resistant to that and will not, because it does happen, will not acknowledge that perhaps their child needs some help? Yes. So that happens quite often, actually. Um, And if a parent disagrees with the school district, then they can decline the evaluation. Or if an evaluation is done and the parent disagrees with the content of the evaluation, then they can have their own evaluation done outside of the school. So if the parent will not acknowledge that this child needs help, is there any recourse by the school? I mean, what a, I guess the result may be that the child wouldn't thrive in the in that educational sure. environment. Sure. Um, but is there any other recourse that the school would have? Unfortunately, there's not. Unfortunately for the student, right? Because that's what we're looking out for is the student's best interest. And I can tell you practically, in my experience, what I see happen in that situation is that um, the school will place the child in what we call an inclusion classroom. Even though they don't have an IEP or a 504, um, they may still end up in that classroom setting because that offers additional instruction. Usually there is a special education teacher in there. So while they don't have an IEP, they may still benefit from some of the services of the students that do. And the big downside to that is that there are limitations on the number of students in that kind of classroom so that they can be receiving the instruction that that they deserve. And so when we put the, the students without the IEP into that classroom, it's kind of diluting the services a little bit. So we definitely encourage parents to um, have the evaluation and, and try and consider what's in the best interest of the student. Well, sometimes it can be hard to acknowledge that your child has a special need. Yeah, very hard. I I have a a child with a special need, and and it's devastating when you first come to that realization. And there's definitely, I would say, a bit of a grieving process even just to come to terms with it. So it's definitely hard and understandable. Well, that's interesting that you have that personal experience because it probably makes you better at what you do. 
that you can actually relate. Yeah, I think so. I, I think I'm um, definitely empathetic towards the parents and, and can understand to a certain extent where they're coming from. There are so many different disabilities that, that kids come with that they're not all always the exact same as what my personal background is, but um, yeah. I've definitely dealt with a lot professionally, and I, I do try and be mindful of the fact that the parents are um, have an extra burden on them outside of the classroom, and, and it's a 24-7 job. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what happens when the reverse happens, when the school does an evaluation and, you know, they don't acknowledge that maybe something something's wrong, maybe the child needs a little extra help, and the parent is insisting that the child should have an IEP? Sure. Is there some way to resolve that? Is there some recourse if the evaluation does not turn out the way the parent had hoped? Absolutely. Um, we would encourage the parent to obtain a an outside evaluation through their own physicians at that point and um, to the extent that their evaluation shows something different than the school evaluation, then their child would still be eligible for that IEP or 504. And at that point, the parent would be reimbursed for any expense they incurred in getting the evaluation. Okay. So if they get the evaluation and it's exactly the same as what the school did, then (laughs) they're stuck with the cost. Yes. Okay. Um, and I guess is that do you happen to know is that something that health insurance would pay for? Most often it, oh, it is. does. Yes. Okay, because I know sometimes when people use experts in the context of a divorce, like for instance reunification therapy, sure. I, I, it seems that health insurance will not cover that. Okay, yes. So normally we're we're looking at um, a neurodevelopmental evaluation, and educational testing um, often can fall under that, and so um, it does have medical codes and and is often covered by insurance. I mean, does this happen often, at, at least in your practice, where you have someone who's battling a school district about what the child needs? Is that typical or not? Unfortunately, it's more typical than you would think, and and it's often not from the evaluation perspective. It's often after the there's an IEP developed and accommodations that have been considered appropriate for the student. And so, what we're often assisting the parents and students with is implementing those accommodations, and sometimes determining whether they're the most appropriate accommodations. It's such a complex area, and there's so many federal and state statutes. and And if you're not in, if you don't have a teaching background as a parent, you may not always understand what is going to provide the best resources for your child in the school. Yeah. Um, Can you give maybe some examples of, in your experience, like, I think, I feel like everybody has ADHD now. It seems like that's so much, so much more common than it used to be. What are some examples of accommodations you've seen for ADHD children? Sure. For children with ADHD, um, often we like to include in their accommodations frequent breaks. And and that break may include taking a walk down the hallway and just get rid of some of that excess energy. And that's completely allowed even if the class itself is going on with the lesson and they would be given additional time to complete that. Um, Another accommodation for students with ADHD sometimes is an aid. Maybe there's an aide in the classroom that assists maybe two or three children that have ADHD, and they can take notice if the child's not focused or are not paying attention and redirect them. So they kind of have that personalized assistance. Now, this just kind of popped into my head. I'm not sure why, because it's not really a disability, but... What happens if there's a child that is particularly gifted and is ahead of everybody else? Is 
Does that ever come into your practice? Yes, yes, it does actually quite a bit. Um, sometimes we refer to those students as two E's or twice exceptionals because maybe they do have a gifted IQ or they fall into that gifted range, but they also have a learning disability that maybe is associated with a more generalized disability. And so um, they're entitled to equal access as well. So yes, um, a student with a disability can be in honors classes, and, and if that's appropriate for them, should be in honors classes. Mm -hmm. And we can make sure that happens. That is interesting because I think when we think IEP or special needs child, we sort of think of it more in a negative right. way, you know, that they're behind and, and that they need something extra. Are these subject to confidentiality, the IEPs? Um, Yes. However, the IEP team is quite large. So the IEP team would include... Um, when you when you walk into an IEP um, meeting, it's very intimidating for parents, especially when they first start the process, because you walk into that room and there's 10 people from the school there and you. So while it's subject to confidentiality, there's quite a few people in the school district that are part of the team and that will be privy to what's stated in the IEP. Okay. So, and I guess sometimes in class, it might be obvious if somebody has an aide or or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and part of the aide's job is to try and make it not obvious, and that changes a little bit as the child gets older and moves through grades and, and also depending on what that aide is there to provide. But um, even even in an inclusion classroom where there's a special education teacher and there there's 12 kids with IEPs, um, the special education teacher is there to specifically work with those 12 children. However, their job is also to not make it obvious which ones of the students are those 12 children. Yes. And then at some point, it, it does happen that the child's needs, whatever they, whatever their issues are that they need for a good learning environment can't really be addressed at that school. There are other schools, right? Sure. Yeah. So would, is, are, is the IEP addressed periodically to see if it's working, to see if it's effective, if there's something that should be modified? Yes. So once a year, usually in the spring, there's an, a reevaluation meeting, and that is used to determine if the accommodations are appropriate. And as you mentioned, as the student gets older, as the, you know things change, those accommodations should absolutely be tweaked so that they're the most appropriate for the student. And every three years, the um, federal law requires a reevaluation. Um, in terms of their testing to see where they fall educationally, where they fall with OTPT and related services, perhaps speech. And um, that's really the best measure of trying to figure out what the best accommodations are. Okay, this is a lot of really good information because I don't know this stuff. And right. it does come up in the context of divorce often enough. Sure. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. It's not obvious. It's really, it's really not. not. Um, you know, every once in a while, I think what probably where I see it the most is someone will, usually in in the context of a conflict, right, is right. like maybe a parent thinks their child should be getting more and the school is disagreeing. Um, that's probably where I see it the most, even just from, you know, friends or acquaintances. Sure. So it's pretty interesting that this really is a highly technical area of law. Yeah, and I can tell you I see that as well because sometimes both parents aren't on the same page. That happens quite often. And um, I can also tell you that generally speaking, when I go into an IEP meeting, it's more often than not one parent that is attending, whether that's for work reasons or, you know, whatever else. It's usually delegated to one parent that kind of bears a little bit more of the responsibility for that. Do you think it's important that both parties attend, both parents? 
I think especially in the setting of a, a div- of divorced parents, it is because I think it provides greater understanding into what the student and what their child is going through in the school. So obviously I practice divorce law, so I see the worst examples of people that can't get along and can't agree on things. Sure. And and that's not to say there's plenty of divorced couples that that do get along and can make joint decisions together. But unfortunately, I see the ones that usually can't. So how do you address that? How does the school address that when you've got a divorced couple and they're like the battling parents every time they come in? They probably start to dread them coming in. (laughs) But how do they handle that? Because do they, I mean, they're sort of like one unit, right? right? But how do they address it when the parents can't agree on what the child's needs are. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important times for the parents to have an advocate to speak for them to the school. When when, when I am representing parents, or there are also other kinds of advocates that are available, but um, then it's one unified voice that's going in and speaking on behalf of the child. And the parents can certainly still have their say in the meeting to directly to the school personnel, but um, often I can work those issues out with them before we enter the meeting. So you would go for the parents to the IEP meeting? Yes. When when a parent um, hires me to assist with their child's education, I always attend the IEP meetings. Do you think that it's that people should have an attorney with them? So... I always tell, when when people come in for the initial consult with me and we go through what the issues are that they're dealing with the school, one of the things I tell them is, as soon as I'm involved, the conversation is going to change because we're going to be talking about what the school is required to provide the student. And we're talking less about the emotions involved and some of the, um, you know, when Sometimes when you're dealing one-on-one with the school personnel, they're also dealing with other students in the classroom, and that may be influencing their decisions for your students. And when I'm involved, we're not talking about any of those other students anymore. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you can sort of guide the conversation. Absolutely. And you sort of know where they can go or should be going and where they shouldn't be going. Yes. Right? Yep. Um. What about the child? Does the child ever get any say in any of this, or is the child's wishes ever considered? So the child is part of the IEP team. However, um, sometimes it's appropriate for them to be there and have an input at the meeting, and sometimes it's not. So when the child gets older, when they are in middle school, the child starts um, attending the meeting if that's appropriate for them. And then um, it's a little awkward, I can tell you from a parental standpoint, um, because you're trying to have a candid conversation about what you think your child can and cannot do, and that's not always the conversation that you have in front of your child. Yes. Because so. you don't want to hurt their feelings. Right. You, you, right. They, you don't want them to hear mommy saying something, exactly. I guess, sort of negative. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that would be hard. Yeah. Well, can can you just ask them to step out into the you hallway? Can. You absolutely can. You can. And you can tell the administrators that you would like to say some things that you really don't want the child there for. So, so is this whole process intended to be more collaborative? It is. It's, okay. It is a collaborative process. And more often than not, the schools have your child's best interests in mind. And they're really are working hard to provide them with the education that they deserve. And you referred to the IEP team. So who is that? Who's on the team? Right. So the IEP team is um, a general education teacher, whether or not your students in the general education, a special education teacher, um, any therapist that may be involved in your child's care, an OT, PT, speech. um, And it also involves the parent and often the child. 
Okay. Do you happen to know when this child moves on to college? Is there something similar at the college level? The answer is mostly no, unfortunately. Um, The IEP and the um, IDEA, which is the federal statute that provides the funding to the public schools, um, stops when the child graduates from high school. Now, for a child with a disability, that doesn't always mean senior year, age 18, they can receive services until they reach age 22. So that age changes a little. However, um, the 504 plan falls under the Rehabilitation Act, which is sometimes also known as Americans with Disabilities. And so that does apply in the college setting. They do still have to provide equal access. So if you have a child who's going to receive services until 21, that doesn't just mean they're in high school until 21. It just means they move on to the next phase of their education. Now, am I right about that? Uh, Well, often they are in high school, believe it or not, but sometimes that looks a little bit different. Maybe they're doing a work program through the high school, and very frequently they're involved in vocational programming, which is still considered through the high school. So they are actually still registered with their high school as a student. Sometimes they call them super seniors, and and obviously sometimes it goes a few years past the super senior. I guess I'm trying to understand what it means when you say that it goes to 21. I mean, if they technically graduate from high school, it's done. Is it done? It, what it, happens after that? Yeah, if they graduate from high okay. school, they are done. So, um, and what does that mean, graduating from high school? Sometimes it means something different for children mm-hmm. with disabilities. So, um, sometimes there's an actual diploma signed, and if that happens, then then your child is done. And and that um, kind of leads me to a conversation on guardianship and, yes. and what's appropriate. That's a natural segue. <laughs> yes. 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 I wanted to ask you about that. So we're getting to the point where there's like the next phase. So let's say they graduate high school or they reach 21. What happens at that point? What do you recommend? Yeah, so um, as you know, once an individual turns 18, they become um, le- have legal capacity in the eyes of the law, whether they're disabled or not. So if your child is not capable um, of handling the responsibilities that go along with that, then we always recommend a guardianship. And in the school setting, this is very important because once a child turns 18, the school can have them sign their diploma. And whether it's appropriate or not to graduate them, once the diploma is signed, it becomes very hard to backtrack and, and have them readmitted. But it applies to life in general, too, right? Yes. Because some yes. of our kids with special needs are not going to be self-sufficient. And so um, it might be appropriate to, to obtain a guardianship legally. And what's the timing for that? When do you recommend people start looking into that? Um, when their child is 17 and a half, it's a good time to really start thinking about it and thinking about what requirements they want to meet and, and who the guardian should be. Because um, once a child turns 18, they're eligible for a guardianship. Is it just automatically the parents or one of the parents establishes the guardian? Usually. Usually it's it's a parent who handles it. You know, sometimes there are special circumstances and it can be someone other than the parent. Um, we often recommend it be someone more than the parent because there are no alternate guardians allowed. So if you mm. want to have some kind of succession planning, you might want to consider having a, a sibling that's old enough and responsible enough to also be named as a guardian or an aunt or uncle. So there can be two guardians named. There can be. Um, we, we've named up to four guardians. 
So that's an interesting issue, especially for me having to deal with custody. I know this is, sure. a, is it a difference? Is it like having custody? Um, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. So the the um, once you have a guardianship, they're called the incapacitated legally. But um, the person who has a guardian doesn't necessarily live with all of their guardians. But who makes the decisions? Any of their guardians can make the decisions. I I sometimes tell our clients when when you have a husband and wife and a minor child, um, or parents and a minor child, and you take your child to the doctor, the doctor is not going to refuse services unless both of you are there in order to sign off on it. So it's the same thing when you have an adult with a guardianship. So you would have to have all of the guardians consent. Technically, but practically speaking, um, you just have to have all of the none of the guardians opposed. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, yes, that makes <laughs> sense. So, uh, my mind always goes here. You could tell what I it's it's influenced by what I do for a living. But what do you do if if they can't agree? Let's say you've got a divorced couple, and you know, they can't. One of them's like, "You're not going to get be the guardian. I'm going to be the guardian." So both of them are the guardian, yes. right? What do you do when they can't agree on something? Let's say there's some medical procedure that, sure. or maybe where the person should live right. and they can't agree. Yeah. What do you do? So we've had that situation where um, the both parents are divorced and may, maybe don't agree on certain things. And we try and walk them through it, kind of act as a mediator to a certain extent, um, probably similar to what you do in your practice and, and try and talk about what's in the best interest of the um, of their child and weigh the pros and cons. And sometimes we act a little bit in that manner. And you just indicated that you can't have a successor guardian. Right. right. So let's say they have one guardian and sure. that guardian dies. Yeah. What happens? Right. So then technically they're a ward of the state. Um, and that's that's not something that you ever want to have happen, and which is why we always recommend that there be more than one guardian. We've had that situation. We've had it. And you can name a guardian in your will, um, similar to what you do with a minor child. However, if the... Um, I guess both if it's a minor or if it's an adult with a guardian, you still have to go through the judicial process to make that effective. Because the court isn't going to just rubber stamp whoever you say you want the Correct. guardian to be, right? Like Absolutely. they have to do an inquiry and make sure that this person's fit and... What else? Yes, no, you're <laughs> I'm making right. assumptions here, but <laughs> no, that's correct. So, um, if you are applying for a guardianship, the court is going to appoint an attorney for the person that you're seeking a guardianship of, just to make sure it's appropriate. And and I tell my clients, you know, this is the right thing to do because God forbid someone was trying to become a guardian for the wrong reasons. Yes, that would be terrible. So the court does appoint an attorney who meets with the incapacitated um, and determines number one if a guardian guardianship is appropriate. And number two, if the people applying are the right people to become their guardian. Now, what happens if the person who would be, I'm not sure what, how I should refer the incapacitated. I'm sorry. I hate that word. I hate that word too, but that, that's, a, yeah, we need to think of a better word for that. A word Absolutely. For that. Um, yeah, the person I don't who know. needs assistance. Yes. That? Yes. Yeah. What happens if they don't want to have be subject to a guardianship? Sure, sure. Yeah, they can say that. They can absolutely tell their court-appointed attorney that they don't want this guardianship or that they don't want that individual to be their guardian. And um, if they can demonstrate capacity, then the court-appointed attorney is not going to recommend it. And um, then you're going to have to show up for a hearing in front of a judge. And maybe that guardianship's not going to happen. Depends on the so situation. So it becomes an issue of capacity. Yes. 
Okay, so I could I could see situations where parents, you know, this happens where they feel like, oh gosh, he can't he can't make any decisions for right. himself. I I have to be his guardian. I have to decide everything. There's right. probably you know plenty of moms that would love to do that, right. but at what point? How do you determine if this is really legitimate? Right. Or if this child, well, would be an adult by then, really is does not have the capacity to make decisions. So does someone have to evaluate the child? Yes, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, the the attorney um, is there for the right reasons, but they're not a medical doctor. And maybe they don't have the expertise to make that exact determination. So you have to submit supporting documentation. The, um, the child has to have seen either two physicians or um, one physician who's recently done an evaluation. It has to be within 30 days that they've done the evaluation. And that the physician is also recommending that this is appropriate, and they'll have to state the reasons why. Um, you can also have support from the Department of Developmental Disabilities, DDD, which a lot of adults with disabilities participate with. And also, if there's an IEP involved that has um, that includes all of these medical evaluations, you can use that as support as well. And when, when we say someone can't make decisions, it the standard isn't that they don't make good decisions, right? right? It's that they don't have maybe the 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 mental wherewithal to appreciate. I don't know. I, I know you're not a doctor, so maybe I'm sort of going yeah. off into territory that maybe an expert should answer. I guess I'm trying to understand, you know, where's that line? Where's the boundary sure. where someone subject to a guardian and not? Yeah. So I haven't really come across a guardianship situation where the individual, it, it was questionable. Usually, because being a guardian is a lot of responsibility. I mean, you know, as being a parent that, um, you know, when you're taking care of a child, it really puts you in that same situation. So you're responsible for everything for that person. But I have seen that situation um, with a conservatorship, which deals only with finances. Oh. So um, so that's different. That's different. Okay, so I don't even yes. know anything about that. I have heard that in the context of Britney Spears. Right, right. There you go, see? <laughs> but that's in California. So is this federal law or is it state law? It's state law. Okay. So what they do in California may be different than what they do in New Jersey. Sure. So what is the difference then between a conservatorship and a guardianship? So a guardianship, the guardian is responsible for all aspects of the person that has the guard that they have a guardianship over. Um, with exceptions. Sometimes they reserve the right to let the um, person who needs assistance vote, or maybe they can drive. More often than not, they cannot do any of those things. So they can't drive? If, if they have a disability that doesn't allow them to obtain a license, then no, they can't drive. Okay, right. but if they can't, if they if the state says they can, they're eligible for a license. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, you can, can you can make exceptions, but they have to be specifically stated. So, if you're looking okay. for a guardianship and your child is able to drive, make sure that you put that as an exception in the guardianship paperwork. Well, that's really interesting. I didn't know that that was in the guardianship papers right? because um, they can't they can't enter into contracts at all, and and a license is a form of a contract. So this is really enlightening. I, I don't think I truly understood what it was. I almost I think maybe the way I was thinking of is more like a power of attorney. Right, yeah. No, it's a little bit different because you know with a power of attorney, the person still reserves all the rights themselves. They're just also giving those rights to someone else to assist them. And with a guardianship, the difference is that the individual um, does not retain any of those rights. So interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. And mm -hmm. did you say they can't vote? Correct. They can't vote unless you specifically accept it. 
can I vote twice? <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that. I'm thinking the answer is no. <laughs> probably no. It's probably no. Well, that's really interesting. Can you think of any other examples off the top of your head that I'm sure I would never have even thought about? Yeah, that this is a big you can't one. Can't do that's it's, so fascinating. There's a big to me. one here that people don't often think of. Um, you can't get married oh. unless you specifically accept it, and you can specifically say, "Yep, yeah, the person I have a guardianship over can get married," um, but generally speaking, they cannot. But if somebody goes and applies for a marriage license, I mean, unless it's really obvious, how would they know? Is it just a void from the beginning? Yeah, it, it would It would be. It would be void from the beginning because they don't have the legal capacity to enter into that. Wow, that's yeah. that's really fascinating. Now, I mean, you can't stop them from having sex. Right. What if they procreate? No, we, we have had this situation where we've specifically dealt with that. And yes, their guardian is responsible for any children that are created. Wow. So yes. they would also, potentially have to pay child support on behalf of the... Right. Because also you have to remember that if there's a child, there's another person involved. Yes. So that true. person, depending upon their status, may bear all of the responsibilities of the parents. But yes, with child support, yes. Yeah, my mind is just going into I all know, these crazy yeah, places. Yeah. Like, would that is that statutory rape? <laughs> I'm really going oh, off goodness. on left field here. <laughs> um, probably questions people don't ask. Um that's really fascinating. I I know there's yeah. going to be like a million questions that could pop into my head now from this. So, so this is maybe a really controversial question, but can you can you sterilize them? Um, I have not come across that. I I believe the answer is in certain circumstances you can, but um, I I can't say with certainty. So that's never an issue that you've seen before. Yeah, I haven't that's, come across that. I wonder if people have done that. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. Hmm, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So then when you want a conservatorship, what happens there? Is the process very similar? Is it permanent? The process it... is similar. Okay. And um, for both of them, they can you can go through another judicial process to kind of undo what has been done. So sometimes um, the conservatorship, by the way, only deals with finances. Okay. And um, similar to the difference between a guardianship and a power of attorney, it's also a similar distinction between a conservatorship and a power of attorney. So when an individual has a conservator, they no longer retain the right to deal with contracts or finances their conservator will deal with that for them. So what would be reasons that you would do that? Like maybe someone who's bipolar? Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's plenty of bipolar people that don't aren't, don't have a conservatorship. Right. So how how what's the standard to get that? Yeah, it's the same judicial process um, that you have to file the paperwork with the court. There is um, someone who comes in and determines whether it's appropriate, a court-appointed attorney. And in that situation is where we often find maybe the individual says, I don't want a conservator. And um, then you have to provide examples of why it's necessary, why it's in their best interest. Sometimes when you have um, individuals with mild disability, they're subject to sometimes people take advantage of them. Yes, yes, I could see that. Yeah, so I, maybe, yeah. oh, this person's such a good friend, they're asking me for $10,000, yeah. and they give it to them. <laughs> and yeah. so that's really what a conservator is often there to protect. Well, I, I always say in the in my practice that, 
you know, clients don't always listen to us, right? And, you know, people who are getting a divorce are very emotional. That's like a very traumatic experience. So sometimes they don't always make the best decisions. They make decisions more out of emotion. And I'll just think, gosh, why didn't they listen to me? You know, there are so many problems that would have been avoided. But I always say, you know what? It's really not for me to decide. They And I always say they get to make their own bad decisions. Everybody gets to make their own bad decisions, right? So I guess, you know, maybe this is not a question that really has an answer. But where's the line where you say, well, you know, they're just making bad decisions. They're allowed to make bad decisions. Right. You know, they're allowed to be a spendthrift or, sure. you know, whatever it is. But then at some point it moves over into something different where you don't really have the capacity to manage your finances. I think the distinction for me is that we're often dealing with people with intellectual disabilities. So um, sure, you're absolutely right. Everyone can make their own bad decisions. And and someone who with no disability, who's just typical, um, probably makes a lot of bad decisions through the course of their life. Yeah. But someone with an intellectual disability isn't really on the same playing field. And so um, that's where maybe a conservator can help them. I get that. I totally understand that. So then we let we can back up a little bit. And um, at some point when you have a special needs child, you would want to apply for government benefits. Yep. So I think you had said about six months before the child turns 18, you would want to start looking into a guardianship proceeding if that's appropriate. When w- is that about the same time you might apply for the government benefits? Yes, that's when we recommend our clients start looking into it. Um, and sometimes this is hard for parents as well because they're used to providing for their child. And the fact that they turned 18, maybe you know they still view them as their child. They don't view them as an adult because maybe they're not going to be self-sufficient. But um, that's the point where we tell our clients where you kind of have to change your hat a little bit. And instead of looking at all of the wonderful things that our children can do because we know they have to work so much harder to meet those same goals we for a moment have to kind of think about all the things they can't do and yeah. um, we have to think about if if we're not here these these are all the the things that we don't really want to think about but i always say part of my job is to think of all the worst case scenarios and plan for them and protect you for them that's so, right yeah. yeah so are there certain benefits that they're eligible for when they turn 18 that they're not eligible for before that right so um Technically, I suppose they are eligible for them before age 18, but they're needs-based um, benefits, meaning that you have to have low income. So the parents have to have low right. income. If they're mm-hmm. under 18, the parents would have to have the low income. So once the individual turns 18, then they become the person with low income. And so that's how they become eligible at age 18. Okay. So then that raises issues, I think, certainly in the context of a divorce, but I could see this being relevant in other situations, too. Um, I had asked you this question before we started the show, but just for our listeners' benefit, I know when you apply for Medicaid, there's a look-back period. Is there something similar like that when a child who's turned 18 is applying for benefits? Yeah, it it doesn't apply in that situation because when they turn 18 is really the first point they become eligible. They're still going to look to see that they meet those requirements, which are quite low, actually. You're really talking about kind of the poverty level. Um, and But they would not have had the opportunity to have violated those eligibility requirements. So when they're 18, it's kind of a clean start. So what if that child had inherited money, let's say, from whoever, a grandparent, maybe one of their parents passed, mm-hmm. if they inherited money, I guess it would have been in a trust. Yeah. Does so- that count? 
It, it depends. That's not a good answer, right? Oh, that's but, a lawyer answer. It is a lawyer answer, but <laughs> the truth is it depends. So um, there is one special kind of trust called a special needs trust. And if the inheritance goes into the special needs trust, then it's not counted towards their eligibility, which is great because guess what? People with special needs have greater expenses, right? So when even when you get those government benefits, it's probably not going to be enough to support them, and so they will need that extra funds. But if it's in um, just a general support trust or a regular trust under a will, then it's often going to be counted against them, and they may not be eligible for benefits. So it has to be specifically characterized as a special needs trust. Yep, and that means that the trust has to have some specific terminology in it. And you can't just – so for people out there that sort of want to – you have to have a specific reason to characterize it as a special needs trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, you couldn't do it for, I don't know why anybody would do this, but you can't do it for somebody that doesn't have special needs. Right, right, absolutely. So you have to, the individual beneficiary has to fall into the classification of a disabled individual. Okay. So I know you do estate planning, so this is probably a good segue into that. There's some overlap here. So I know also from my practice that we have to be mindful as a divorce lawyers that we have, again, certain provisions in the settlement agreement. And I happen to know that Payment of child support is one of those. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, that's absolutely relevant, especially when you have a, a child with a disability. Support uh, The support obligation often extends past their 18th birthday. Um, And so when that happens, it's very important that the support is paid into a special needs trust so that they're eligible for things like the monthly stipend from Social Security and and even more importantly, the medical benefits that are out there. And then who who would control the trust? It's just whoever you designate, you know, maybe the parents. Right. So you you name the trustees when. when you're forming the trust. So when we write a trust, we find out who the people, you know, who the parents would like to be the trustees, and it's usually the parents. Okay. And so I sort of remember something from property law that you you can't be the settler, the one who establishes the trust, and, well, you can't be the beneficiary and the settler, right? Right. So in this trust specifically, um, if it's for an inheritance, you can't be, but there is, there's there's a first-party trust and a third-party oh, trust. Great. I know, I'm sorry. Getting complicated yeah. here. So um, the you can be both, actually, um, the, but it, again, has to be a even more specialized type of trust so that they can receive their benefits. So like you, you use the example of an inheritance. Let's say um, a disabled individual who's over 18 um, receives an inheritance from a grandparent, and receiving that money immediately throws them off their benefits. Yeah. So. So, but but they've received it. So what do you do? You can't unreceive it. So um, the disabled individual has to contribute it to a trust. Yeah, that's. I was going to ask you that. You know, what happens if you have some relative that just doesn't understand this stuff, or maybe doesn't care? Like oh, I'm just not going to worry about it. I'll be dead. And they receive all this money. Right. You, you just said you it can't happens. unreceive it. You right. can't give it back. And it's right? a great thing, right? Like they're trying to do something, you know, good for you and help you. So it's a great thing. So um, you're required to what's called spend it down. Um, in order to be eligible for your benefits again. And one of the ways that you can spend it down is by putting it into a first-party special needs trust. Okay, so let's say I'm disabled. Somebody leaves me money thinking they're being nice. There is something that I can do to make sure that I don't lose my benefits at that point? Yep, and you should do it as soon as possible so you don't have a penalty period. 
Okay. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that either. This is so <laughs> this is so educational yeah. even for me. So Good. I ho- certainly hope our listeners are getting something out of that. Um, okay, so what else would you tell someone like this to consider in their estate planning? So estate planning for... Um, for someone who has a special needs child, we definitely want to think about not accidentally leaving them benefits, I mean, I'm sorry, inheritance from either the parents or, as you said, from well-meaning family members that maybe want to do that. So um, we try to educate them on what, what their estate planning should look like, and maybe they do a trust ahead of time, even though their child's not 18 yet, um, but they want to leave something to them in their will. The way to do that is to for us to form one of these special needs trusts and then they can name that trust as a beneficiary and then they can tell their family members we, we will draft a letter for them that they have the option to give to their family members saying if you would like to leave this person inheritance please do it this way so that they can retain their benefits so that's definitely a big one yeah the guardianship is a very big one um, and a lot of the the school you know while, while they're still young um, working to make sure that they receive what what they deserve through the schools so it's really, really important for, well, it's important for everyone to have a will because you must, you, this probably drives you crazy. There's so many people out there that just think, I don't need a will. What do I need a will for? Oh, my mom will just get everything or, yeah. you know, whatever. And it's kind of a dangerous assumption to make because I th- know I said this to you before we started the show. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And you could unwittingly be creating a problem for your heirs. Sure. Like that's probably another attorney that I know always says is the best gift that you could give your your family is that you have your will done so that they're not dealing with problems if if and when you pass. Um, But I think it's probably particularly important for people that do have a special needs child. Yes. um, Because... And maybe you can speak to this, particularly as a parent of a special needs child. You kind of, don't you kind of worry, you know, what's going to happen to him or her when I'm not here anymore? Absolutely. You know, you know, as the parent of a special needs child, that you have to do so much more now to help them. So it's it's your worst fear that when you're gone, they won't be taken care of, and you can you can make sure that they're taken care of if you plan ahead of time. And that's what we try and help our clients do. So maybe to allay some of the fears that people might have, especially if they have a child who's really dependent, you know, even physically for help on a daily basis, what are some things that parents can do so that they can make sure that their child is cared for when they're not here anymore? Sure. One one of the easiest things to do is to form the special needs trust and then um, purchase a life insurance policy that can fund the trust. And then you know that when when you're gone, there's going to be resources that are available um, in addition to the government benefits that they may be receiving. Um, And second to that is really the guardianship, right? Because if you have a child who's dependent and you're the guardian and you're gone, well, then who's going to take care of them? So you can take care of that ahead of time. And that's another issue that I've seen with drafting settlements agreements is you have to have the life insurance proceeds payable to the trust. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that was stuff that I learned actually a long time ago. Right. Thank God, you know, somebody um I had the sense to consult with somebody about it, recognizing that there were some issues there. Yeah. Um so you said that with a guardianship, you can't have a successor guardian, but right. what do you, how do you handle a trust? Can you have named successors if 
you know, yeah. when you're not available? You can, and, and we always recommend that you do because maybe maybe something's going to happen that you won't be available. So we always have you name alternate trustees, and usually it can be in line with whoever the guardian is going to be. And then what happens, I guess, if you, let's say you have, you're lucky enough that you have a lot of money and it's not enough to, I guess this is more of an estate planning question, it's not enough to, to um, you know, last the child's lifetime. What happens then? Yeah. Well, there are different things you can do. You can look into purchasing an annuity for the child. Um, and that will provide a stream of income for the child at that point. Um, but there are there are other sources, there are other um, organizations that assist special needs individuals. Um, you can look to resources from ARC. Um, they often help individuals with special needs. Um, we mentioned the Division of Developmental Disabilities, the DDD. They they often help. Um, there's DVR. So there are other there are resources out there. Um, the primary resources, of course, are Social Security and Medicaid. Okay, um, and I guess Medicare is not something that would ever apply to them. It could if they had private insurance, then they could they could look to use Medicare. But um, more often than not, you're looking at Medicaid. Now, what if the child can work? Sure. What if they are able to have a job? Yeah, there's there there are workability programs so that they can still receive some of their benefits and have an income. Um, but you're you're looking at the child who maybe can work to the extent that they're not making an income that would support they'd be able to support themselves with. I, because I happen to know from if you're on SSI, is that what they're on? Yes, SSI. SSI. Okay, you can't make very much. No, it's true. It's very little. It's 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 like sixteen thousand dollars a year. So, uh, okay, so I thought it was even lower, but that was probably years ago when yeah. I was, when I first learned about it. So is, is that, and I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but is that the number that would apply to the child too? Right. So that, that does apply to the child. They, can, they have to have less than $2,000 approximately in assets and less than $16,000 annually in income. So um, they can, as we said, they, they can work, they can make a nominal um, income, but it has to be quite low. Okay, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's what we said. That's why special needs trusts are so, such a great thing if you can, if you can do it. Like, funding them with life insurance often makes them doable for um, parents that maybe couldn't otherwise fund them because um, Social Security is designed to keep you at that poverty level. I know that's rather um, <laughs> that that's sort of like yeah, <laughs> it's contradictory, right? It's like, yes. well, if you're going to be receiving government benefits, you better be below the poverty right, line. Right. But it's interesting because if you go a little bit above it, then you lose all your benefits. Right. So you might be in that weird window where you can't make enough really to support yourself, exactly. especially in New Jersey because right. it's expensive to it's live expensive. here. Um, but one thing I will note is New Jersey is one of the states that has the best benefits for disabled individuals. Oh, it does. Yeah, people often move into our state ah, if they have disabled children. That's interesting. For the programming. I have heard that. Yeah. I I didn't know why they were all moving to New Jersey, but I had heard that we actually have the highest number of uh, autistic children. Mm, did I, you ever I hear did that? I did not know that. I, I or be maybe not that. the highest. I don't yeah. want to misrepresent, but a lot. And right. apparently there are parents that move here. I guess I didn't realize that was the reason. Yeah. Would you say that we have better school districts for disabled children, yeah, if you absolutely. happen to know? I absolutely think we do because they're, um, our, our, our state laws are really complementary to help the students. 
Well, that's good to know. So the, a lot of people are leaving Jersey in droves because of the <laughs> property taxes, but I'm glad to hear that there is a good reason to stay. Um, so as a divorce lawyer, and for anybody who's going through that process now, um, when do you recommend or do you recommend that people going through a divorce consult with someone like you before they actually sign their settlement agreement. Yeah, I think they should absolutely just come in for a consultation before they sign the agreements if they have a child with a disability. And that way they can just learn what options are out there and what things might be on the horizon that they'll want to consider. Maybe some of it needs to be included in the property settlement agreement. Maybe it's something to deal with later. Okay, so but I, I really want to emphasize to people, which I do in my practice, but to people out there listening, I really want to emphasize that you should consult with somebody before you sign your settlement agreement because if there is a provision like of the many things that we've talked about today, there's probably other topics right. we didn't even touch on. You really need to make sure that you do them correctly and efficiently in your settlement agreement, especially if you don't have the kind of relationship with your soon-to-be ex-spouse where it's amicable and collaborative, because if there's a dispute, you don't want to then be litigating that that dispute. Right. right? That could be costly, and it's really relevant to your child and, and their best interests. Yes. And, you know, I again, you know, I've seen attorneys that, um, examples of attorneys that didn't know some of this stuff. Right. I was lucky enough that I learned it from somebody very early on, but there are attorneys who actually don't know that right. child support has to be payable to the trust. Yeah, and then the child is penalized, unfortunately. Yeah, so it can really create a lot of problems. And... Um, you know, I think you've already emphasized the need for a will, but I thank you so much for all this thank information. You for me. I found this very enlightening. I can you please tell us where we can find you if we need yes, your services? Of course, of course. Again, my name's Colleen Clark. I'm an advocate for individuals with special needs, whether they be students or adults. I can um, assist them with their estate planning and also be an advocate for them in the school districts if that's needed. And you can always find me um, at my practice. In in Tom's River at the Mattis Law Group. Our telephone number is 732-281-0060. And we're um, primarily based in Tom's River, but we also have offices in Red Bank and Neptune. Okay, so if somebody's up in, I don't know where Neptune is. Is that, what county is that? Um, goodness, I should know that. Is that north? It is north. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're all over. So if somebody's down up in Bergen County, they shouldn't be deterred from going no, to you. No, absolutely give us a call. Yeah, I would emphasize there's not too many people that really do this area of law. There's not. If, if you're looking for someone to represent the student, yeah, you're going to have a tough time finding someone. So as I always tell people, don't use a dabbler. Um, use sure. someone who really knows yes. the nuances. I think Colleen has more than demonstrated that <laughs> she really knows the nuances. Um, but please use someone like that because this is obviously of utmost importance to make sure that this done, gets done correctly. Um, and we have a couple minutes left, so I wanna, wanted to ask you, how, do, how did you start this practicing this area of yeah, law that's that's a great question so i started my practice in just regular old estate planning trust and estates and i did that for a long time um i've been practicing since 2000 and then i had a child with a special need and mm -hmm. i started dealing with the school districts and i realized how much i didn't know and i realized how much once i once i started delving into it um how much the schools are not going to tell you and so yeah. um and then i had friends that started coming to me and asking for advice and i said oh 
this is really a need that people have as someone who understands the law to represent their interests. And it I became a, a passion project of mine. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah. I think um, I learned a lot, but I will. I think I am going to email you every once in a while with some Please dumb do. question like, what if somebody's yeah. subject to a guardianship and they win the lottery? You know, what happens to that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> email me. Anyway, thank you for thank listening you. to Divorce Happy Hour. And Colleen, again, thank you. Thanks See you so next time.